Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read the first six verses. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified or counted righteous by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So there you have it, Galatians 5, 1 through 6. Just a brief recap on what we looked at last time. Last time we looked at verses 21 through 31 of chapter 4. Um, I don't know, was, that, was that clear, what was going on there? Because I know it's, it's considered one of the more difficult passages to kind of figure out what Paul is saying there. Um, when he talks about the allegory. But the idea behind that passage, of course, is he's comparing the law, which the Galatians want to bring, or which the Judaizers, I should say, want to bring the Galatians back under the law. He's comparing that to something that is old and earthly and temporal and obsolete. He compares it to the slave woman, Hagar, and to her children, uh, Ishmael. So in other words, those who wish to find righteousness through works of the law, he says, well, you're Ishmael. Your mother is Hagar. You are a slave child because you are, you are not the child of promise because you are enslaving yourselves and you're enslaving others by trying to get them to come under works of the law. You need to be a son or a child of the free woman, Sarah, who represents Zion, Mount Zion, who represents the, the heavenly Jerusalem, who represents the new covenant, the Old Covenant, not a bad covenant. The Old Covenant is not a bad covenant. The Old Covenant is just the Old Covenant. It's old. It's obsolete. It's, it's served its purpose. And now, in the fullness of time, when Christ has come, the Old Covenant is set aside. The children of God, the people of God who are in their infancy, are now grown up. They no longer need the, the tutor. They no longer need the, the steward or the managers. They are now free they have now re- achieved a certain level of spiritual maturity, so now you are free. So don't go back to those things. Do not listen to those people. So what do you do with them? You kick them out. Just like um, Abraham told Sarah, put away the slave woman. Uh, so we are to put those out, get them out of here, those who seek to uh, enslave us uh, to the law. Cast the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So cast them out. Get them out of the congregation. They're troublers. He calls them troublers in chapter 1. He's going to call them troublers again in chapter 5, verse... uh, somewhere in 7 through 12 in there. He calls them troublers. And they are troublers, and we'll see why a little bit this morning. So that was last time. Well, as we go now... Uh, into this passage here in chapter 5, Paul, again, continues to exhort 
the Galatians to now that they understand, at least hopefully after reading you know, everything from chapter 3 onward, is now as long as they understand this idea of what the law in relation to faith and the promise uh, is, that they would now stand firm in their freedom. Christ has set them free. This is a sort of a, an emancipation proclamation, if you will, for the Christian. And, and you know, you're going to kind of see this, you know, he kind of alludes to it a little bit in the, in the passage we saw last week, but this, this sort of this exodus motif, this idea of being liberated from slavery, just as they were liberated from slavery in Egypt, just as they were sort of liberated from the oppressors in the book of Judges when, when they disobeyed, the oppressors came and they were put under oppression and persecution and they cry out to God and God delivers them. Or just like with, uh, you know, in the kingdom period when they were oppressed by their enemies or oppressed by evil kings, God delivers them. Or the same thing from exile. When they're in exile, they're, they're in bondage to these foreign nations and God delivers them and brings them back home. So you've got this slavery deliverance um, motif kind of running through this passage as Christ here, or as Paul here says that we are free in Christ, that we have been set free. So this morning, uh, the big idea is that Christ has set us free from slavery to the bondage of the law. Therefore, do not submit again to that yoke of slavery, as he'll say in verse 1. So the first point in verse 1, freedom in Christ, we see there, uh, after his allegory of Sarah and Hagar, Paul then, as I said, bursts forth. I almost like to read this with a lot of passion and energy in, in verse 1 with this Christian emancipation proclamation where he says, we have been set free for freedom. Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ has set us free and you know, the, it's the same Greek word there for freedom and it's being set free. It's the same, it's the verbal form and the noun form of the word. He has set us free for us to be free. We have been freed to be free. That's, you know, it's like, well, duh. Well, yeah, but that's the idea. It's like, in other words, be free. That's the point. We were in bondage to the law, in bondage to sin. We were, uh, and now we have been set free. How? How has this happened? Well, it's in Christ, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. How has He done that? Well, He has freed us from the bondage of the law by fulfilling the law. He has fulfilled the Mosaic law. Matthew 5.17, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. How else has He set us free? Well, He bore the curse of the law. Because we could not keep the law, Jesus did keep the law, but He bore the curse for us and freed us from the curse of the law. How else did Christ set us free? He freed us by paying our sin debt. We were indebted to the law because of our sin and indebted to God because of our sin. And Jesus paid that penalty and freed us from the debt. He freed us from the curse. He freed us from the, the regulations of the Mosaic Code. You get this idea uh, in Romans. Again, the, the, the great connection between Romans and Galatians in Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. And he's showing, uh, these, these are examples of how um, we were slaves, we're now set free. And he talks about here about being released from the law in chapter 7. 
where he goes on, and do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? And then he uses an illustration. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Okay, I mean, that, it's a good example. It's a good illustration. It makes sense. If you're married, you are obligated to fulfill the covenant of marriage. You're obligated to your spouse. You're obligated to, you know, to submit and to love one another and to respect one another and things like that. But if your spouse dies, you're free. You're free to marry another. You're free to not marry another. You're free to go on. You're no longer under the law of marriage, he says. So verse 3. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. Again, kind of obvious, right? But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise. So here Paul now makes the, the transition from the illustration to the application. My brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. To whom? Well, to him who has been raised from the dead, Jesus, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So the, the, we've been set free from the bondage of the law in order to, to serve Jesus and in order to bear fruit for God. Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not another, sorry, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. So, in other words, we have been set free from the law, its written code, its punishment, its curse, its regulations, and now we are set free to live life in the Spirit, which is one that bears fruit uh, to God through faith. And again, just think of how this freedom um, is expressed throughout the New Testament. You don't need to turn to these passages, but you can write them down if you want. In Romans 8.21, Paul there says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul there talking about how creation is under the bondage of sin, thanks to Adam and Eve. Uh, creation groans, but when uh, the sons of God are revealed in their glory, the creation itself will be set free. Or in 2 Corinthians 3.17, there's another great passage that talks about freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17, where he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Again, this idea that we are set free to live life by the Spirit. And then, of course, verse 18. You can't go without reading verse 18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. James 1.25 talks about how we are under the law of liberty, which is kind of a weird way of putting it, right? James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James refers to the law of liberty a couple of times. And the law of liberty is essentially what Christ has set us free from, 
to serve. The law of loving God and loving uh, our neighbor as ourself is the law of liberty. Um, again, one more. 1 Peter 2.16 1 Peter 2.16, Peter there says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So Paul will get to that in, later in, in Galatians 5 where um, you know, he mentions that we are free, but not free to sin. Right? We're free to serve the Lord now. So we are free. Now think of how the Judaizers were, in a sense, destroying this freedom. They were coming in. And they were telling the the Galatian people there, the believers there, that you have to follow the Mosaic Code. You have to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. If you're a male, you have to be circumcised. You have to follow dietary codes. You have to follow the, 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 the ritual calendar, the religious calendar, and all these things. For them, Christ has set them free to be in bondage to the obsolete Mosaic Code. Right? He's like, Christ has set them free from this thing, and they're saying, no, 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 you need to submit to this thing. You can think of ways of how even today Christians destroy the freedom that we have in Christ by piling on extra rules that you have to do, right? You know, I mean, from, from this, you know, think of some banal ones, but, you know, it's like, you know, you have to come to church and you have to be dressed up or or what have you, or, you know, you have to do these things each and every day in order to be, you know, in order to, to show and prove that you are a Christian. And it's, it's just another way of showing bondage. It's just another way of kind of piling on regulations and rules to destroy the freedom that we have in Christ. The people of God were held captive by the law, but the fullness of time has come. That's that's why I love Galatians 4.4 4 so much. But when the fullness of time had come, Christ sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Christ has come and He has set us free. He has set us free. Think of when Jesus uh, first appears in Luke's Gospel. His, his first uh, ministry appearance where He's in His hometown and He goes to the synagogue and they receive Him gladly and He he is asked to read from the scroll, and they have the scroll of Isaiah there, and he reads uh, the first verse out of Isaiah 61.1, and one of those things that says you know, that the, the servant has come to set, at, to set at liberty those who are in, captive, in captivity. It's a quote from Isaiah 61.1, to, to bring sight to the blind, to give the lame the power to walk, to preach the good news to those who are oppressed, and to set the captives free. Jesus came to set the captives free. And of course, then what he says is that this scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. In other words, I am the servant who has come to do these things. Or Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus looks and, and, and sees those who have been burdened by the rules and regulations of the Pharisees, those who have been burdened by trying to be righteous as the Pharisees are. And, and he looks at them and says, Come unto me, you who are heavy laden, you who are under the burden of the Pharisees' righteousness. And he says, And take my yoke upon you. Don't take their yoke. Take my yoke. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's still a, you're still, you know, it's what Paul will say in Romans 6, you're not, when you're set free from, from being a slave, you're not 
free to do whatever you want. You're free now to serve Christ. But what he says is, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because I have taken upon myself the penalty of the law. I have taken upon myself the curse of the law. You are no longer under this burden of having to do this in order to be righteous before God. I've taken that upon myself. Now I give you my easy yoke, which is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Not that that's easy, but there's no curse involved with that. There's no, if I don't do this right, God's going to kick me out of his family. Because God even, you know, graciously rewards our feeble attempts at, at obedience. He receives them in grace. Or in John 8 where Jesus says, um, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So Jesus has come to set uh, his people free. And then his command, Paul's command here in verse 1, do not submit. Do not put yourself under those things. Do not um, be entangled or ensnared by these things. Stand firm. Stand firm. That's to persevere, to persist in that freedom. Uh, this same verb, to stand firm, is used in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, where Paul there says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. He uses it again in Philippians 1, verse 27. Uh, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's, It's a military term. It's to line up in a rank. And, and when Paul uses this here in Philippians, he's like, you need to be together. You need to be linked arm in arm together in the faith, standing firm in the Spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the Gospel. And the reason he says that, because in Philippians there's, a little, there's, there's some hint of dissension and, and, and division in the church there with a couple of people who have been fighting amongst one another. And he's like, no, you need to stand firm. You know, the... the the, the line, right, if you're talking about a military line, the line is only as strong as, as long as you stand firm. If there's a weak link in that line, you know what? The enemy's going to attack that. Stand firm. Stand firm. It's, it's a similar verb that Paul uses in Ephesians when he talks about the armor of God. To stand firm, therefore, in the strength of the Lord. Why do we have to stand firm? Well, why do you think we have to stand firm? Yeah. Freedom won or attained must be guarded. It must be guarded and maintained. Right? If you if you do not watch out for your freedom, guess what? You will lose it. And that, that's 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 just as true in the spiritual realm as it is in in the physical realm, in in, in the political realm, in the social realm. If we don't watch out for our freedoms, guess what? They will be eroded. They have been eroded. They are being eroded as I sit here and speak this day. But freedom won must be guarded. You have to stand firm. Paul here makes it sound like it's the height of absurdity to enslave oneself once one has been freed. That's what Paul's point is. Then you've been set free. 
Don't go back under that yoke of slavery. Don't take that yoke back upon yourself. Again, it's absurd. Why would a a person who's been set free go back? But that's what we see here. The the Judaizers, that's what they were doing in chapter 2, verse 4. Remember, we're going to learn there. Uh, Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. They came in (laughs) to spy out the freedom that they had in Christ. Why? So they can bring them back under slavery. So just as in the world of politics and government, so too in the world of theology, freedom is something that we must that must be fought for and held on to jealously and guarded. Stand firm in the freedom. Do not let anybody impose upon you anything about anything other than faith in Christ alone for your justification. You stand in God's sight justified by faith alone. Do not let anybody say, no, you've got to do this, or you've got to do that, or if, if you don't add these things to Christ, then you're not justified. No. No, cast that person out of your presence. So now verses 2 through 4, submitting to slavery. And Paul cuts right to the chase here in verses 2 and 3. If you receive circumcision, then Christ is of no advantage. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again. Let me repeat myself, he's saying, in case you didn't hear me the first time. To every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you receive circumcision, if you... Now, we'll get to this in a moment, but in other words, if you receive this right of the law, then he's saying Christ is not profitable to you anymore. That's what the word means. Useful, profitable, advantageous. This is something we've been saying throughout this study, right? Christ plus... Fill in the blank <laughs> is nothing. If you add anything to Christ, you get nothing. It's not like you get a diluted Christ. You get zero Christ. There's no, there's no gray area. It's one or the other. There is no third option. If you receive circumcision, this is of no advantage to you. Now, this is not speaking of the act of circumcision. This is speaking of the act of circumcision as it pertains to the Mosaic law as an entryway into becoming a Jew. Um, I thought the, I often like the way this translation uses, you know, explains things. Uh, the New Living Translation says, if you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. It's circumcision as it relates to the Mosaic law. I mean, people circumcise their children today and it has no meaning from a Mosaic law kind of perspective. But he's like, if you're doing this as a rite of the Old Covenant, if you're going back to an Old Covenant way of thinking, that's the point. Christ will be disadvantages, disadvantageous to you. He will be of no benefit to you. You will annul what Christ has done for you. You remember, this is the whole... In, in, in the Galatian context... This comes up later, if you remember, in Acts 15 with the whole Jerusalem council. This is the whole point of the council. As we read in Acts 15.1, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, 
unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's Jesus plus circumcision. And that's going to equal them nothing, but they think that it equals them salvation. <laughs> Later on, I like how, I believe it's either James or Peter, puts it, um, in, oh, it was Peter, in verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. This is Peter after he has already had this encounter at Cornelius' house where God says, no, the, the, the Gentiles are just as much children of God as, as the Jews are. And it changed his way of thinking. He had to have a paradigm shift there, if you will. But um, Peter's like, look, why would we place this yoke on them? A yoke that we could not carry. Which is exactly what Paul said to Peter earlier in Galatians when, when the Judaizers came and Peter was like, ooh, they're here. I'm going to go eat with the Jews now and avoid the Gentiles. And Paul confronts him to his face and says, why are you doing this, Peter? Why are you acting in a way that we ourselves could not even fulfill the law? So then he reiterates in, in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are indebted. You are, you are placing yourself, again, under that debt, under that curse. You've got to keep the whole law. Again, he has said this before. Verse 10 of chapter 3, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by how many things? All things. <laughs> All things written in the book of the law and do them. James says the same thing. If you are a sinner in one area, you're, you, you are a lawbreaker. Right? It's not enough to say, well, I haven't done this. It doesn't matter. You broke the law. You have broken the law. You are indebted to keep the whole law. The law is not a la carte. <laughs> Okay, you can't just say, I like this one, I like this rule, now that one I'm going to skip, okay, uh, because I, I suck at this one, but uh, these other ones I'm, I'm good at, okay, uh, so the, no, the law is all or nothing, it's all or nothing, it's not a la carte, and then he uses somewhat a graphic metaphor in verse 4, you are severed, now, I thought it was, you know, when I saw it in English, I thought it was maybe a play on the word circumcision, but it's not. It's, it's the same word that he uses earlier uh, that uses, that basically means to annul. He uses the same word in chapter 3, seven, verse 17, uh, where he says, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God to make the promise void. But here he's saying, look, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. In other words, if you seek justification by the law, you are making null and void in your life the work of Christ. You are, you are throwing it away. <laughs> You're trampling it underfoot. To use what the writer of Hebrews says, you are trampling Christ, you are crucifying him again and trampling the grace of God underfoot. Moreover, he says, they have fallen from grace. You have fallen from grace. They have, they have, by seeking justification by the law, removed themselves from the sphere of grace. 
So you either, you either accept that Christ has done it, or if you decide to, to seek righteousness through the law, you leave the sphere of grace. And now you put yourself back under the curse of the law to keep the whole thing, not just parts of it. You are, you are leaving. You are falling away from grace. You are abandoning grace to return back to the law. Again, it's the whole reason why the book of Hebrews was written. But in Hebrews 6, you get one of the most dire warning passages in the entire book. In verses 4 through 6, for it is impossible. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. If you seek righteousness outside of Christ, you are basically falling away, and you're holding the Son of God in contempt, is what he's saying here. This is a, it's not... This is not nothing, okay? This is not nothing. And I think the point is quite clear here that Paul is making in these verses that you are either saved by grace through faith alone or you're saved through your own law-keeping. In Isaiah, right, 64, I think it's 6, says that my righteous deeds are filthy rags. Okay, so you you either come before the Lord clothed in the splendid robe of Christ's righteousness or you come in your filthy rags. It's like, here, here you go. Here's my, here's my dirty rags I'm going to give to you, God. And he's going to say, get away from me. right? Get away from me. Think of the parable that he tells in one of the Gospels of the wedding. right? The, the wedding where uh, somebody comes and, and he's not dressed in wedding garments. And he says, well, how did you get in here? Well, uh, you know, I don't know. I snuck in. He says, well, kick him out. Kick him out. Think of also, if you remember from Genesis... Right when Adam and Eve tempted to cover their sin, what did they cover their sin with? It was fig leaves, right? Fig leaves are of bad, right? Leaves wither, right? It's it's not a good garment. So what does God give us? Is I'll cover you with a better garment, the garment of a, uh, the skin of a slain animal, um, to show that uh, sin requires death. But you are either coming before God in Christ, clothed in Christ alone, or you're going to come in your own law keeping. To take the latter path, of course, is to put yourself under the entire obligation to keep the whole law. And it's to also to sever yourself from Christ. It is to, essentially what you're doing is you are, you are preventing any chance of you abiding and being engrafted into Christ by doing this. So then in verses 5 and 6 we see here now um, sort of a contrast What's, what's the, the answer here? It's faith working through love in verses 5 and 6. For those of spirit by faith, by, sorry, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So but those who, for those who cling to their freedom in Christ, uh, there is something better in store for them. 
If, if you uh, reject Christ, if you estrange yourself from Christ, there's nothing but the curse of the law. But if you hold fast to your freedom, what do you have in store for you? The hope of righteousness. That word hope, I've used this before. I've explained this before. It's a confident expectation. Um, after watching the Bears draft uh, this year, I hope the Bears will be better than they were last year. That is not a confident expectation. Uh, that is just a, that is, that is maybe a pie-in-the-sky hope. Uh, but here we're talking about a confident expectation that the thing hoped for will come to pass. It will come to pass. And then we eagerly wait. That's, that's anticipation. It's like you're just waiting for it. You're waiting for that hope of righteousness. Think of as when you were children at Christmas time, waiting for the day when you, the moment where you could tear the presents open. Or, or as a high school student, you're, you're waiting for that graduation day so you can get out of high school and, and move on to something else. Or perhaps on your wedding day where you're waiting to be joined to your spouse so you can begin your lives together. This eager anticipation. It's, a, it's what Paul uses in Romans to speak of the world eagerly waiting the revelation of the sons of God, just waiting to be free from the curse as when the sons of God appear, then the world itself will be restored. Eagerly waiting, anticipating, uh, patiently waiting. And what is this hope of righteousness? It's the moment when our sanctification is complete. It is the moment when our sanctification is complete because in our justification, we are not made righteous. We are declared righteous. We are declared righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ. We are not actually righteous, but when Christ returns, the work of the Father is done, Philippians 1.6, the work that he began in us will be complete on the day of Christ Jesus. That work is done and we will be complete. That's what Paul speaks of when he eagerly anticipates in Philippians 3.9 where he says there, I wait I wait, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or 2 Timothy 4.18 is another great passage on this. Sorry, 4.8, not 4.18. 2 Timothy 4.8. Really, you need to read verses 6 and 7. Where he says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. This is Paul at the end of his life. He anticipates the time of his departure. and my, The time of my departure has come. Verse 7, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but all to all who have loved his appearing. Paul eagerly awaits for that righteousness. Titus 2.13 Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The hope of our righteousness. Until that time, Paul says here, circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. One way or the other, it doesn't matter. All that matters is your faith in Christ. And it's faith working through love here, as he says in verse 6. This is a living faith. This is an active faith. This is one that produces fruit. As James will say, this is, this is not a dead faith, but a living faith. 
I was reading this you know, the, other, uh, the other day, in fact, and I thought this was a great um, word in the Belgic Confession on uh, the back of the hymnal uh, on page 881. It's the article on man's sanctification and good works. And as I was reading through this, I thought, the whole article is great. I'm only going to read part of it. But the whole article is great, and I think it's, I dare say, might be one of the best things I've read on sanctification. But in the Belgian Confession, Article 24, that second paragraph, uh, let me, hold on, let me see. Nope, sorry, it's the end of the first paragraph. Okay. Um, I'll just read the first paragraph. So the Confession says, We believe that this true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's a spirit-wrought faith. It sanctifies him and makes him a new man, causing him to live a new life. Again, it's the faith that does this. The faith in Christ, wrought in us by the hearing of the word of God and the operation of the Holy Spirit, causes us to live a new life and freeing him from the bondage of sin. Therefore, it is so far from being true that this justifying faith makes men remiss in a pious and holy life, that on the contrary, without it, they would never do anything out of love to God, but only out of love, uh, self-love and fear of damnation. In other words, without this faith, the only good works, quote-unquote, that we would do would be to aggrandize ourselves or to, well, I'm doing this so I, don't get, I, don't, I won't be damned, as opposed to, I'm doing this to, to show my love to God. Therefore, this is the part I really wanted to read. Therefore, it is impossible that this holy faith can be unfruitful in man, for we do not speak of a vain faith, but of such a faith which is called in Scripture a faith working through love, quoting Galatians 5.6, which excites man to the practice of those works which God has commanded in his word. A living and active faith, a faith working through love, Love is what, as Paul puts it here. In other words, keeping the law doesn't matter. Only faith expressing itself in through love. Again, think of what James says is that active, living faith. It's one that shows that, again, loves God, loves our neighbors as ourselves. It's not a freedom uh, to, to sin. It's not, our freedom is not a license to sin. And we're going to see that uh, a little bit later, uh, looking at verse 13, peeking ahead for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So he'll get to that. So this freedom is not to sin. It's freedom to express your faith through love. So again, as we bring this to a close, I think this passage, in my opinion, stands... This is my opinion. I think this is the best passage in the book of Galatians. I just, I just love verse... I mean, in my Bible, I even have it... I have it squared off and underlined and words circled on it because I love this verse so much. Christ has set us free. Now we have to guard that freedom and, and, and resist this temptation to fall back into bondage. And again, that call to stand firm is, is, is much needed. It's a much needed call as we have repeatedly mentioned throughout this study, the temptation to fall back into works. The temptation to fall back into slavery, to sin. We have to stand firm. We have to guard this faith jealously, this freedom jealously. We are always tempted to fall back into works. 
So we need to be a, a, a vigilant sentry, a guard on a tower, keeping watch over our faith. And again, the freedom we have is not from obedience to Christ, but from earning a righteousness from the law. We are not, again, remember, we're not set free so that we could do whatever we want. We're set free from the burden of the law. We're set free from uh, the obligation to fulfill the law for our righteousness. But we still obey Christ. We are now free to love God. We are now free to love our neighbor. That's why I think the law and gospel distinction is so important here. The law is what we are required to do. The gospel is what God has done for us. And if we keep those distinctions separate and, and distinct, and they're linked, don't get me wrong, they're not, they're not completely distinct, but they, are, they, are, they need to be distinguished. They are linked but need to be distinguished. The gospel is what God has done. The law is what we are required to do. God has done what we are required to do and gives that to us by faith so we are now righteous in His sight. And now what we are required to do is to love God and love neighbor and to show forth uh, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as the Spirit works in us through our faith, through the Word of God to produce this fruit.